Okay, well, um, tonight we're kind of getting to the climactic uh, moment or period during which Moses and Aaron have been coming before Pharaoh on God's behalf to implore Pharaoh to let God's people go. And of course, we've made our way now by this time through nine plagues, nine judgments, if you will, that were brought upon Egypt because Pharaoh's obstinance in complying with the Lord's command. And the Lord always knew, by the way, that this is where it was going to get to. And so he, in chapter 11, where we, were, where we finished last time, he now makes it clear to Moses what the 10th plague would be, uh, which he had already previewed back in Exodus chapter 3, that, um, that, that the Lord is going to bring a 10th and final plague, and it is going to be claiming the life of the firstborn of every Egyptian family, and even the firstborn of their, of their um, animals. And uh, we saw last time in the first three verses of chapter 11, God making good on a promise he made back in chapter 3 of Exodus when he had told Moses back at the burning bush that ultimately God's people would be let go from the bondage of Egypt and in the process they would literally plunder the Egyptians. That is to say, they will leave with extraordinary wealth um, that is actually given to them more or less voluntarily, although the Lord, of course, ordained it. And, uh, and the, the people of Egypt will gladly give all of this wealth to the families of God's people because they're, by this time now, after all the things they've suffered, the plagues of flies and frogs and hail and fire and blood and all of these different things, um, they're very anxious for God's people to move on. They, and we, we read also that um, Moses by this time is now seen by the people of Egypt as a mighty man, a mighty man of his God. Um, there aren't masses of Egyptians converting over to the God of Israel, but they do understand that the God that the people of Israel worship is a mighty God, and Moses is his chief spokesman. Um, and so, true to form, the Egyptians do load up the, the Israelites with gold, silver, jewels, clothing, etc., much of which will end up being the raw materials to build the tabernacle when that time comes as we will make our way through the book of Exodus. Um, he, the Lord announces the, the death of the firstborn, that this is what's, gonna, what's going to happen because God tells Moses that Pharaoh is not going to heed the command. And so that's where we got to up to this point. Now as we enter into chapter 12, the Lord is going to lay out for Moses a procedure, a protocol that is going to distinguish the people of God from the people of Egypt. It is going to be a means by which the people of God will be passed over in this judgment that's about to befall the land of Egypt. And they will be spared. They will not lose any of their firstborn. There, there will be no harm brought upon them provided they follow the directions that the Lord gives them. And this, of course, now establishes sort of the centerpiece feast of the whole of, of what will ultimately be the ritual, ritualistic law uh, that God will give to the Israelites as we make our way through Exodus. Um, this is one of the primary 
events that shows to us as 21st century Christians one of the major important ways in which God used this chosen people both to bring into being and also to convey the idea of his plan for salvation of humanity. This whole Passover ritual that we're about to uncover in chapter 12 is really one of the main things that God uses the children of Israel as his backdrop to convey something that is going to foreshadow God's plan for all of humanity's salvation. And you're going to see, I'm going to do my level best to bring out from the way in which this, this feast, this ritual is, is laid out in the scripture to draw out of that the lines that, that, that connect to Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice. He is our Passover lamb. We've just gone through this period uh, in, our, in our calendar and in the Jewish calendar because they've just celebrated the feast of, of Passover and of unleavened bread. And they are simply falling into line with exactly what the Lord gave to the Jewish people right here in chapter 12 of our, of our Bible here of Exodus. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of Exodus uh, chapter 12, and here's what we read. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now just to stop there for a second, what the Lord is saying is, okay, I am now going to reorder your calendar. I am going to establish that this month, the month that we are now in, which is the month in which you are going to celebrate the first Passover, is going to be the beginning of your year. Now that month that they were in used to carry the Canaanite name Abib, but it's going to be changed to the, the month known as Nisan. And that's going to, because of the importance of this, this feast that the Lord is about to share with them, that is going to be what starts their year. So this is a way in which the Lord is underscoring the importance of what he's about to share with them. Um, just the same way, by the way, that I don't know about you guys, but uh, the day I was baptized, and I don't have a specific day when I prayed the prayer in mind for salvation, but I know that I got baptized on July the 12th, 1988, Menden Ponds, Ponds in Rochester, Bill Gallatin, who used to be Jeff's uh, pastor and, and mine for a time, and Michelle's, uh, baptized there. That, that was the beginning of eternity for me. So, so it's the beginning of my calendar, right? Well, that's kind of the way he's positioning this month of Nisan for the Jews. If this is going to be your first month. Your entire calendar is going to be built with this as the reference point or the, of the first milepost. And so he goes on to say, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count. For the lamb, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now a couple of things come out here. He says every man will take a lamb and that will be for his family. And he says if your family is too small, um, then combine with the family next to you. Now rabbinical tradition that flowed from this was 
you should have at least 10 people that are going to partake of this one lamb. And it could be as many as 20. And that caused me to wonder, well, how much meat do you get from a one-year lamb? And uh, after, it's all, now if, after it's all dressed out, it's between 50 and 70 pounds, but we're going to see that the Passover lamb is not dressed out. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but, but this lamb is selected, and you might be saying, what? From the sheep or the goats? And you got in your mind that, you know, the whole thing with God at the end of the age is going to separate the sheep from the goats and all that. Well, for them, and in, in Hebrew, uh, the word for lamb could mean either an animal coming from the sheep side of the thing or the goat side of the thing. And there's no distinction made for this particular sacrifice as to um, which one they take it from. The only thing that is definitely spelled out here is it's got to be without blemish. So you wouldn't look at, say, your, your first-year lambs, and there's one that's kind of got a gimpy leg, and you say, well, uh, it's not going to turn into much anyway, so we'll just use that one. Uh, that would be a big no-no. The Lord wants first and best fruits, always, by the way. And this is the way we should think of anything that we give in honor for the Lord, whether it's tithing. You know, a lot of people approach their tithing by, by saying, well, let me see where we get at the end of the month and whatever we have, we, we can spare, we'll, we'll give. That's not first fruits. Uh, and that's why it blesses me that sometimes when you see how people tithe, their tithe automatically goes on day one of the month. And to me, that shows that they have the right, the right attitude about tithing. It's that, look, I don't know how the month is going to go. It's day one of a 30-day month. But that doesn't matter because it's first fruits, best fruits. And this is what the Lord is requiring here, that the lamb will be without blemish. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, this whole protocol for Passover is projecting out what ultimately is God's plan for salvation. And this is why when people want to know, well, why did Jesus die? This is one of the questions, uh, frankly, that uh, people who are completely uninitiated to Christianity, and you start to share with them the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, what he did for us and in the midst of speaking that, and you're talking about Jesus, the man, but you're also talking about Jesus, God, son of God, they say, well, how could God die? Why would God die? And this is, the reason for all that is right here. The Lord is projecting or is foreshadowing that the only way in which sin can be atoned, we're going to come to this soon, but the only way that atonement can happen for the sin is through blood. The life of the thing is in the blood. We're going to see that in a moment. And the blood that has to be offered, as we see here, they're, they're, they're giving us a metaphor or, or a paradigm for the, the kind of blood that's required. In this case, it's, a, it's a, a lamb without blemish. When Jesus Christ will come along as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, we are going to know for sure that he lived as a human being yet without sin it is the only way in which he could be an acceptable sacrifice a once and for all sacrifice for us there would be no other way that it could be accomplished and you might say well he's god can he change the rules god is a lot of things and one of them is he's just and justice requires that a penalty of death be paid for sin we are sinners the penalty that hung over our heads before we got saved is death the only way in which that penalty can be paid is through blood. 
And the only blood that will take away the sins as opposed to the blood that merely covered sin that was from the bulls, the goats, the rams, the sheep, the goats that were offered uh, through the Mosaic system is that the blood be perfect, sinless. And so this is what's being foreshadowed here um, through all of this. And, and, um, and this is what's part of the instruction for uh, the children of Israel. So we carry on and we read in verse 7. And they shall take some of the blood. You see, there it is. The focus is on the blood, you know, of this entire sacrifice of this lamb. And a lamb could, could weigh 120 pounds by this time if it's a yearling. The only thing that is going to be given to God is the blood, okay? And, and so this underscores the importance of that. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. You can imagine a doorway and there's the, the cross piece that goes over the top of the door and the two doorposts. The blood is put on those places. You could imagine that the way in which the blood might drip would literally form a cross. And this blood that they're going to take from the sacrifice is going to be applied to the doorpost. And we're going to see in a moment why that's important. Verse 8, then they shall eat the flesh on that night. So on this, this uh, day of Nisan that we're going to come to here, um, well, well, let me just say, the 10th day, up in verse 3, on the 10th day of the month, they select their lamb. And then they keep it with them in the house until the 14th day. So for four days, this cute little lamb is part of the family. Um, and, and it's kind of presumed that the family would grow attached to it. If you've been around sheep and lambs and whatnot, they're actually a pretty docile creature, uh, almost to their detriment. This is why they need a shepherd, because if not, they would just wander in the street, walk off a cliff, uh, whatever. But they're docile, they're cute. And there would be an attachment to this lamb over the course of these days. And I, I believe the Lord is underscoring here that this sacrifice, it's not just another animal. It's, it's something that would be dear to them. And, and frankly, any sacrifice that's worth offering to the Lord should be something that's dear to us. Not just some throwaway thing that we can live without or even don't even want. It's like, well, I guess I'll just give this to the Lord. That's not a heart of worship. That's not... Um, not what, uh, what the Lord requires. So they're taking blood from the, the sacrifice to put on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night. This would be on the, uh, the, at twilight of the 14th day of Nisan. Roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire its head with its legs and its entrails. Now, for those of us who have ever had lamb, I'm going to guess you've never had it like that, where the entire animal is roasted in the fire. And again, you see parallels here. Fire is, 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 a, is symbology for judgment. And when we consider that this lamb in its entirety is going to be roasted in fire, it, it evokes in our minds that Jesus Christ was exposed to the entirety of the judgment of God for the sins of you and me. Now, in a real sense, he was, he was exposed to the full fury and fire of the judgment of God against sin. They are 
called upon here in verse 10, you shall not let you shall let none of it remain until morning and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, with sandals on your feet and with your staff in your hand. So shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, it's interesting that the sacrifice needs to be completely consumed and to the extent possible to be completely eaten. Again, if you, if you consider this Passover lamb to be a foreshadowing of Christ, isn't it, isn't it interesting that when Jesus spoke about being disciples of Christ, what he told people, I think this is in John chapter 6, where he talks about unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, 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 can't, you, you can't have fellowship with me. And it says in that chapter that after hearing this, many people followed him no longer. But what Jesus was trying to convey to the people is, look, if you want to be disciples of Christ, it's not a casual relationship. I look around the room and I'm confident people in this room know that. It's not a casual thing. It's not a part-time thing. It's not a one-day-a-week thing. Jesus, in speaking about consuming him, he wasn't talking literally about coming up and taking a bite off of his arm or anything like that. Uh, although I, you get a sense from reading John's gospel that some people there might have thought that. But what he is saying, I mean, he even says it in another metaphor. I'm the bread of life. What do you do with bread? You eat it. You eat it and it becomes part of you. You eat lamb, it becomes part of you. What, what's being conveyed is that we, in the atonement that Christ has won for us, we want to consume all of him. We, we don't want a casual relationship. We don't just want a little taste. We want all that he has to offer. And this, again, is, um, is conveyed in the instructions concerning the Passover. Um, he says, thus you shall eat it with belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so shall you eat it in haste. Now, it's interesting that he tells them in this first Passover, I want you dressed for the road. This isn't going to be a leisurely, comfortable meal with, with multiple courses and with, uh, you know, where you're lounging on a, on a, uh, on a couch. I could picture them uh, ready for their trip. Now, in their day, they don't load the car. They load their backs. They, they put on their best uh, road shoes. They have their staff in their hand. They have their belt around their waist because things hung off that belt. Um, and that belt also would, would be something that would gather their outer garment f to them. What he's telling them is, I want you ready to leave. You're going to eat and run. And the fact that you're going to be standing there completely dressed to hit the road is evidence of the faith that you have that this is all going to go down. Because they're eating this meal on the promise that they're going to be let go. It hasn't happened yet. Pharaoh hasn't issued an edict saying, okay, all you folks, all you Israelites, you're going to hit the road at 0600 hours or anything like that. As far as they know, the hammer is still down. Pharaoh has still refused to let them go. The Lord is saying, he's going to let you go. And he's going to let you go after what I'm constructing here in this Passover ritual. And you are going to demonstrate the faith that you have in my promise by being ready to go. And this, this, this is something that actually we had a great discussion about this 
last night in, uh, in James chapter 2 with the men because we were in the portion, the second portion of chapter 2, where it, three times in, in a span of about 14 verses, James says, faith without works is dead. He is not advocating for a works-based theology. He is simply saying that true faith bears fruits of that faith. It bears, it bears the works that God has created for us since before the foundations of the world. When you go to Ephesians chapter 2, you see Ephesians 8 and 9 where it says, For we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God, lest any should boast. Then you move into verse 10 of that, of that same chapter, the next verse, and it tells us because we are God's workmanship created for works that he has ordained for us since before the foundations of the world. So what God is simply saying is, you're saved by grace through faith, and once you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you will naturally evidence that faith by performing the works that I have prepared for you since before you were you. And this is the same thing that's going on here is that these folks, they're partaking of the Passover meal. The Passover meal is that which is going to enable the promise. And they are therefore to demonstrate their faith in that promise by being ready to go. Um, Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, that's Hebrews chapter six, uh, 11, verse 6. Hebrews eleven twenty eight. By faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. See, they did all of these things that God commanded. Selecting the lamb, preparing it the right way, eating it while dressed to go, putting the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, because if they don't, let's get to it, we're in verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. Now they're getting the rest of the story of what's the significance of the blood on the doorpost. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. You see how that was tossed in there, by the way? The Lord knows that the Egyptians have been deceived by false gods. And behind every false god is a demonic influence. Um, that's guaranteed, that, that the enemy knows how to fashion in the minds of people deities that, that fit their predilections. So, you know, they worship the sun. Well, here's the sun god, Ra. Uh, they they, verse, they um, uh, worship fertility uh, through Hecate, Hecate the, the goddess of fertility, uh, the frog goddess and, and all that. So he's not only executing judgment upon the people, but he's showing them in a demonstrable fashion that the gods that they so depend on are powerless, phony and evil. And so he says, I will, I will uh, strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. See, the Lord is continuing to answer that statement that Pharaoh issued. I think it's chapter 5, verse 2, where he said, who's the Lord that I should obey what he tells me to do? Well, the Lord has continued to remind him who he is, right? Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So here we have to understand once again that the, the command to put the blood on the doorposts is a way in which the children of Israel are demonstrating their faith in the salvation that Christ has won for them or, or that um, the Lord will show them in terms of not losing their firstborn. And it, it again, it has the parallel with us that, you know, we can, we, this was something we talked about again in the Bible study last night with the men, uh, this idea of easy believism. It's easy to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God who died for my sins, was raised again. I believe that he is my savior. The real acid test of the sincerity of that belief is whether or not you also recognize him as Lord, which is to say that the things that he commands of me are things that I actually comply with, not because I need to do it to be saved, but because that is evidence of that which I profess. And so this is why Jesus describes in in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where he says that there will be many in that day who will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they, they, they had a profession of faith without a heart commitment to that which they professed as faith. And it's the same thing we see here. If there were Israelites who heard what Moses said, got the lamb, prepared it for the sacrifice, had the meal, but didn't put the blood on their doorposts, we would have to conclude that their firstborns would be taken. The interesting question is, if there were Egyptians who heard this and thinking, we just went through nine of the worst episodes in the history of our country, and now they're saying something about blood on a doorpost and a lamb to be roasted with its entrails in it and... Sounds gross, but let's do it. Who knows? But that maybe they would have, their firstborn would have been spared if they had faith in that promise. Now, there's no record in scripture that says any, anything like that, but it's an interesting question. Um, here, the Lord is making it clear that the blood on the doorpost is evidence that you are putting your faith in the salvation that God has promised, and therefore you will be passed over in the judgment. You don't, I mean, let's, let's just take a moment to uh, stitch together the parallels or the paradigm that the Passover feast is creating in our understanding of our salvation through Christ. Uh, first of all, the bondage of Egypt and the exodus from Egypt, we, we all clearly know that this is, it's parallel in our New Testament uh, theology is that we are, we are in bondage to sin. We are people who have been under the servitude of sin up until the point in time when the Lord has rescued us from that. This is the way Paul describes this uh, freedom in Christ from the bondage of sin in Romans 6, 17 and 18. But God be thanked that through you, or I'm sorry, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered and have been set free from sin you became slaves of righteousness. This is what's going on with the children of Israel. They are in bondage to Egypt. 
Um, there is no escape that they can perpetrate on their own. They put their faith in God's ability to deliver them from that bondage. They evidence that through their reliance on the blood of the sacrifice. And of course, they are freed. And so we come to the lamb. Of course, the New Testament equivalent of the lamb is Christ, our Passover lamb. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is clearly drawing a line between Jesus and what he represents in the feast that was established way back here in, in the Exodus of this Passover lamb that is going to deliver them from judgment, from the judgment of God. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, he's our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, in that particular uh, quote from Paul, he's marrying the two feasts that are going to be described in this chapter. On the twilight of the 14th day of Nisan, the Passover lamb is killed and it's eaten that night. That following day begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we're going to see the description of that coming up here in a moment. And, and the unleavened bread, of course, that leaven is a, a symbol of sin. And so in that Feast of Unleavened Bread, sin is taken out of the way. And so Paul is using the imagery that God created, the backdrop being God's people, Israel. This is why I say the significance of Israel is huge. It is, it is God's ensign. It is God's, God, God's way of portraying to the world, this is the salvation of humanity that I've planned, my vehicle for that is this one chosen people. They will, they will be the ones who will establish the nation that all eyes of the world will be on to see the might and the power of me, God. And, and just going through the study of the modern state of Israel that I did back there in, uh, in the end of March at, at the Integrity Church, going right through the scriptures, these are the things God said that would happen to the Jewish people, and they happened. And they were scattered. They were decimated. They, they were subject to genocide. They were subject to this and that. But God said that would happen, but he would bring them back in the land. He would reestablish them. He would have them in a place where they would build the temple, etc., etc., etc. He used this people to bring scripture in, alive and into the world, not only to codify it, but to transmit it through history. Uh, he used these people to bring the ultimate Passover lamb into the world. And so we, we see here uh, very clearly how this, this feast, this beginning of, of the, the, the feast that God has given Israel, all of which have its part in portraying elements of the plan of salvation, this, this is the beginning of all that. And it starts with the most significant uh, symbology of our salvation, which is why God literally rejigged their calendar to say, okay, everything starts with this, okay? Uh, how about the bitter herbs known as the maror uh, in, in Hebrew? And this is another element of uh, what they have to have as part of this Passover meal. It's one of three things that, are, that comprise the original Passover meal, the Passover lamb, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread. Uh, the bitter herbs represent the, the, the bitterness of the Egyptian slavery, the 400 and some odd years of servitude. 
And, uh, and it's eaten even at the contemporary seders of today. Uh, and then the unleavened bread. Um, Luke chapter 22, verse 19. We're reading about what Jesus did at that last uh, supper. He said he, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, here we have unleavened bread uh, representing uh, something that is where the element of sin has been removed. Uh, it both represents the haste that the Jewish people had to employ to get out of Egypt quickly. They didn't have time to, to have dough prepared that then is leavened so that the dough will rise so that they can bake a loaf of bread much the way they would normally eat it. No, they're leaving quickly and therefore there's no time to make bread with leaven that would cause the dough to rise because you have to wait several hours for that. So it, it represents haste, but it also represents um, the, the absence of sin in the course of the sacrifice. And so, um, yeah, so we carry on here. He says there in verse 14, so this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Interesting that we, the Lord gave to his church a similar ordinance. It is not a work unto salvation. It is something much like baptism that God gives to us as a way to be connected to something significant that he's done. Paul describes, uh, Paul describes what's going on here in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, where he says, for as often, he's speaking of the communion meal, the communion uh, taking of bread and wine, and he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Much like what God is telling the Jewish people concerning the Passover meal, continue to take this meal so that you might remember the faithfulness of God to deliver you from the bondage that you were in. And, and it's done to this day. Um, Jewish people who are observant Jews are doing this to this day. And um, we, much in the same fashion, every time we take communion together, as we did a few weeks ago and as we will do uh, in the first Sunday of May, is we are, we are proclaiming something. We are proclaiming that the broken body of Jesus Christ and the poured out blood of Jesus Christ is what has delivered us from the bondage of sin. And that's why it's an ordinance given to the church. It's not something given generally. It's not something that you would want to urge a visitor to the church to do to be polite. Uh, we aren't offended if they don't take it, if they're not a believer. Uh, we would be offended if they did take it lightly, not being a believer. Um, and so this is the way in which the Lord has has set it up because the, um, the thing that we're commemorating with that bread and wine is something that they did not even have with the sacrificial system of that time. What we have is a once and for all sacrifice. What they had was a sacrificial system that was perpetual, that, that literally relied upon rivers of blood that covered sin but could not take it away. The, dis the distinction for us, uh, the writer of Hebrews described 
in Hebrews 9.12, he said, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered into the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's what we celebrate. That's why the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to do a close-in examination of the entire sacrificial system um, and, and, and really the, the priesthood system, the tabernacle and then the temple, the, the, the sacrifices that were offered. So these were good things. These were good things because they foreshadowed, they shaped, they created a paradigm for what ultimately would come. But now we have the better thing. And one of the greatest distinctions that shows the better aspect of the new confidant is right there in what we read in Hebrews 9, that it's, not, it's no longer blood of bulls and goats. Uh, it is now the blood of a perfect sacrifice that not, not just covers sin, but takes it away. And so he institutes the, the Passover. And, and now we carry on verse 14. So this day shall be as a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. Now he's talking about the feast of unleavened bread that immediately follows the Passover meal. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That would be like saying that somebody who doesn't track with this feast of unleavened bread is taking a cavalier attitude about sin this is something in our day i mean we live in an age of grace we live under a different covenant and i think sometimes we can be in danger of being a little cavalier about sin and they're saying right here that look if you if you are going to eat leaven during this period of time you are demonstrating that you are cavalier about sin in which case you are cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. So on either end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's speaking about a gathering, a holy gathering, a worship time. No manner of work shall be done on them. But that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So pretty much not doing any kind of work other than preparing um, the food. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Once again, the Lord is very adamant that he wants them to remember this. He gives them something by which they can remember this deliverance. This is why, again, I sound like a broken record, but I'll keep saying it. The things that we read about in the Old Testament are vital for 21st century Christians to know. This is where we get, <clears throat> excuse me, this is where we get the confidence that we have in the promises that God has made to us. I mean, you can, you can pull a million. He's faithful to complete the work that he started in us. Uh, we know that all things work together for the good for those that love the Lord are called according to his purpose. Uh, that he save us to the uttermost. That no one will snatch us out of the Father's hand. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. There's a myriad of promises that God has made. And to the skeptic, they will ask the question, how do we know these are true? Say, well, let me show you 4,000 years of history where every single promise God made, he delivered on. 
He gave them mileposts and, and feast days and ritual to bring to mind his faithfulness. He's given us that history. And we'd be fools not to seep ourselves in it because the enemy wants to steal your confidence at every turn. The greatest tool that the enemy wields against Christians as opposed to sinners is despair, doubt, discouragement. Those are the things that, that hamstring Christians from being the salt and light that we're called to be. And nothing can be a better prescription against that kind of disease than the confidence you get through the word of God and seeing the promises of God answered. So he goes on, uh, verse 17, so you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this same day, I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day through your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat the unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. So he's making now emphasis here. And again, the, the, um, the symbology uh, has to do very specifically with sin. You see that consistent throughout the scripture, both Old and New Testament. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Now, the Lord is relying on the elders of Israel to convey the plan. Uh, keep in mind, no internet, no texting, no phone calls, uh, not even snail mail. Um, pretty much the, the congregation of Israelites had local leadership. They, com they comprised the elders that we're reading about here. So Moses can't talk to all of the people. I don't know, you could number up, some scholars number them in the millions, but he can talk to the leadership and he can use them as the conveyors of what the Lord has commanded, which is the way elders should work in the modern church, is that they should be individuals who are well-connected with the word of God, the direction of God, the, the, the um, leadership team of the church, and they should be influencers on the rest of the body as to how to walk in the word, in the way of the Lord, etc. And notice that uh, he brings up here in verse 22... This um, taking a bunch of hyssop, a plant, an herb, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and use that to strike the lintel and the doorpost. Well, as it turns out, hyssop is connected with purification and sacrifice throughout Scripture. And you see this in a number of different places. In Leviticus 14.6, hyssop is used for the ceremony of cleansing a leper. They use that uh, in the process of cleansing a leper. In Numbers 19.6, hyssop is used to make the ashes of the red heifer for the water of purification. Uh, and this is something that's very central to the construction of the new temple, the third temple, as it were, in Jerusalem. This is why there's a lot of attention paid right now on finding 
uh, bona fide red heifers. They have to be perfect. They can't have more than like two or three hairs that are not red. And that's so that the ashes of that animal will ultimately be used to purify the temple. And as we see here in Numbers chapter 19, Hysip has a role in that process. In, in Numbers 19, 18, Hysip was used to apply the purification water. Uh, Hysip was even used in connection with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross because in John 19, 29, we read that when Jesus was offered sour wine to drink on the cross, the sponge was, a sponge was soaked with it and put on a branch of hyssop and offered to Jesus. So hyssop is involved in all kinds of ways with purification and related to sacrifice. Um, and so uh, this, is, this is commanded by them. And he, he tells them basically, don't go out of the door of your house until morning because it's during the evening that all of this... Um, judgment is going to be brought on the Egyptians. I think we're going to have to stop there for tonight. So next time we'll pick it up at verse 23 of chapter 12 and carry on with the rest of this 10th plague, which is bad news for the Egyptians, but is very um, prophetic for all of us in this room because it ultimately is portraying what saved our souls and saves humanity if people will only receive it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. We thank you for this amazing account of the way in which you pre prepared your people for deliverance. And not only did you deliver them, Lord, but you used the ordinance that you gave them that night as a roadmap for what would come ultimately through the perfect lamb who came to take away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ, Lord. And so I pray, Father, that we would be encouraged in the way in which you laid this plan out so wonderfully and how it has so beautifully saved our lives, Lord. We pray, Lord, that everybody who hears the words of truth, Lord, would receive it and be saved, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you might find us useful in your hand to effect that purpose on earth in this area, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you for meeting us here tonight. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have a great night.